first four verses. If then you were raised with Christ, seek the things which are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, you will appear with him in glory. I would challenge you like I would any week. Please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible always have the final say. Let the Bible always be the authority for which you test all things to be true or counterfeit. Did you notice, by the way, in this text, in these four short verses, that the word used to describe our Jesus more than any other is Christ? Since then you were raised with Christ. Seek the, seek the things which are above or put, seek the things which are above where Christ is seated at, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above for you died and your life is now hidden in Christ. And when Christ, who is your life, appears. Four different times used of this. And it's important to recognize how this separates, by the way, this isn't just Jesus' last name. It isn't his last name. It isn't like Jesus' surname was Christ. Jesus, born to Joseph and Mary Christ. Christ is the Greek word for Messiah, Mashiach in the Hebrew, Christos in the Greek, and it means anointed one. This was the one, the promised redeemer and deliverer that had been promised for over 4,000 years. Different than just someone who shows up and says, hey, I'm your man. For 4,000 years, I am the man because that man had been promised all the way since the fall of man. From the fall of man, God had promised that one, not many, not several, but one individual would come and redeem mankind from his sin, from the bondage of that sin, and deliver him from the complete tyranny of the world that he lived in that is under the dominion or the sway of the evil one. And there was only one that was going to do so, and Jesus is that one. And so convinced is Paul that he could say Christ, and it's synonymous with Jesus now to us. In that, why do we know that Jesus is the one? Because he did that which no one else could. And thus, when other people try to disqualify Jesus, they take away those unique qualities and try to rule them out. Like Jesus' literal death on the cross, his literal resurrection three days later, as had been promised in that 4,000 years, even beyond 1,000 years before Jesus ever came. Every bit of Jesus' life, his sinless life, which, by the way, the Koran even says Jesus lived a sinless life. And I'm like, how many prophets do you know lived a sinless life? Every human being does not live a sinless life. Only God lives a sinless life. And Jesus himself lived a perfect sinless life. The, the uh, Mishnah says that Jesus did miracles. And the way that they said it is even more insane than believing the truth which is that Jesus snuck into the Holy of Holies, found out the way to pronounce the tetragram, the four letters, yad heh vav how to pronounce the name of God, and then wrote it on a piece of paper, cut a slit into his side, stuck the paper in there, and that was magical enough for him to do miracles, claiming to be the Son of God. The Mishnah, which is the Talmud, that which is written 550 years after Jesus came, that sort of, in essence, was sort of a, a polemic uh, against 
Jesus, to try to prove that Judaism is proper and right and Jesus didn't fulfill all of that. Well, really, all it is is a diatribe to try to disqualify a Jesus that had been clearly established in those 500 years. And they say, well, Jesus did all of these miracles, claiming to be the Son of God, even raising from the dead. Even 500 years after Jesus had done so, they make that claim. Just have a hard time believing it. But Jesus literally died, literally resurrected, as the Bible had promised, and he is therefore the Christ. That backs up everything. It tells us, by the way, he was declared to be the Son of God in Romans 1 by the, re by the resurrection. It was that resurrection that proves that Jesus is everything he claimed to be. Now, in this book, again, just to get us to where our text is, in chapter 1, remember, Paul has heard of their faith and their love and their hope. Their faith, love, and hope. And that is a church he's not personally met, sitting in the Lycus Valley with Hierapolis and Laodicea, and he's stoked to see a church that's risen up, that he himself didn't even plant. And chapter 2, as a result of that, he tells you, hold your course. This thing was always about Jesus, not about anything else. You were rooted in Jesus, you were built up in Jesus, you were established in Jesus, and you became fruitful and abounding in thankfulness because of Jesus. So hold your course. That's the way it was. Keep the most, if you remember from the idea of being circumcised, keep the most sensitive part of your heart open to him. Jesus is all I need. He is all I need. He is all of the wisdom, because in him is found all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He is all of the fullness of the Godhead, and I am complete in him. Jesus is all I need. But we also read that Jesus did all I need. He resurrected me, if you remember, when I was dead in my trespasses and sin. He blotted out my guilt, if you remember that from last week. And also, if you remember, that he triumphed hell itself. Jesus did that. Not a religion, not a denomination or a non-denomination, not a church or a pastor or a group, but Jesus and Jesus alone. He is all I need. He did all I need. And therefore, remember to keep Jesus the main thing. Because that's going to always be the challenge in regards to Christianity. If you want to take Christianity and make it impotent, all you have to do is remove Jesus. You remove the Christ from Christianity, and what you're left with is anity. I mean, there's nothing left. And you realize that becomes the, the common and most, the most fruitful approach that the enemy will give you. And all he has to do is sideline you a little bit. And that's what Paul is warning these people. I know that you started in Christ. I can see it because the love that you have for one another is clear testimony that Jesus has infected you. The fact that you have a hope in Christ's return tells me that Jesus has infected you. It shows me that Jesus has saved you and that you live with Jesus as your center point. And what you find is when Jesus is not the center of focus for you, you'll live this really impotent, lame, unjoyful life and still call it Christianity. So Paul says, I want to warn you about the sideliners. Those that will try to turn your walk into philosophy, which isn't Jesus. We'll try to turn it into the world's principles, which isn't Jesus. We'll try to turn it into a bunch of legalism, which isn't Jesus. And even though these people may appear educated and erudite and eloquent in all that they do, but all of their rights and regalias and regulations will be no help at changing you from the person you were to that sought to gratify your flesh at every count to a person that seeks to live for God. Those things will look like religion, and they will be a religion. They're just not Jesus-focused. And they will look like, and this is the dangerous thing, beloved, is you could get so caught up in that, you could think you're doing awesome, but you have no joy. You're not working from the overflow. 
Instead, what you got is you're just kind of existing. And, you know, one of the clearest ways you'll see it is nobody wants to be like you. The bottom line is when you fall in love with Jesus, every person in the world in one way wants to be like you. Now, they may not want the route you took, which is the only route to be who you are, which is to accept Jesus and make Jesus the center. But at least they'll go, man, I wish I had what you have. And you're like, well, you can. It's Jesus. And it's like somehow that scares them away. Oh, I want all of that. And the whole world wants the things of Jesus without Jesus. If I could have that love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control without Jesus and the spirit of God that comes from accepting Jesus, I would take it. And that's what the world is marketing is sort of a counterfeit of each of those things. Well, you can't have love, but you can have life. I mean, that's what we'll sell. And basically what they're doing is they're selling temporary things to replace the permanent things of Jesus. Don't get sucked up into that because the truth is that if you do, you're not going to look any different from them and they're not going to want anything. But let me just say, you become like what you worship. And that's where we're going to see in all of this. I mean, I've seen in churches, I just, I have this um, genius recommendation thing that you get on iTunes. I don't know if you guys get that, where they see the things that, I mean, it's sort of like Big Brother see the things you download and go well we'll sucker you in if you download these songs you'll probably like these too and they're right 20% of the time I'm like oh I need that one too and so as some people I've never heard of that and, and, and every song is just Jesus focused and so forth but then I'll like get onto their album and there was one guy on there and it's just like a, a, a black gospel singer and I was sort of excited about it and one of the songs was just called I love me and I understand the idea of, you know, you need to like yourself. But the bottom line is actually you should be really willing to let yourself die and love Christ to make him the new person you want you to be. And, and I started listening to this song and it's like, I just got to find my self-esteem. I just got to want to love me. And I'm like, I started, I felt like I needed to take a bath after listening to a couple minutes of this song. I'm like, it was like verbal maggots crawling all over me, you know. And I'm like, ooh, and it was totally the principles of the world. And, and I understand the idea, well, if you hate yourself, what are you going to do? Look at the bottom line is, it's okay. Listen, hear me out. It's okay to hate yourself because Jesus isn't keeping you the person you are. Lay that person down at the cross because that person's riddled with sin and, and with fault. But Jesus is making you another person. But if you worship him, you'll become like him. And I love that. What you set your sights on is who you'll become like. Even a student will become like his teacher. But the scripture says, by the way, about people who make idols, that those idols have hands that can't perform, eyes that can't see, a mouth that can't speak, ears that can't hear, and those who worship them will become like it. If you spend all your time staring at the boob tube, you'll become a boob. Pardon me for saying. I mean, you'll become empty, and you'll become just cheap and tawdry, because, and that becomes your world. If you spend all your time in the movie screens, you'll find you'll become like the movies you watch. If you spend all your time hanging out with the party crowd, you're going to be like the party crowd. You can't work at McDonald's and not smell like french fries by the end of the day, like it or not. <laughs> and the truth be told, Paul is now looking, and in all of these warnings, he's like, look, it, it started with Jesus, it stays with Jesus, it moves to Jesus. Don't even let it move to other things that sound really gloriously Christian. We're going to move to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's ministry is to bring you to Jesus. And if you spend all your time on the Holy Spirit and you're not doing it with Jesus, you're really not on the right spirit. Because the Holy Spirit's ministry is to bring you to Jesus. It'd be like if my best friend introduced me to Suzanne, and then we got, Suzanne and I became more and more intimate as we were married, but then after a while I traded her in for my best friend. Something's a little weird. I'm like, well, you could talk about my wife, but the bottom line is it's no replacement for my wife. 
And if my best friend were my best friend, he'd be leading me back to my wife. And in the same way, the Holy Spirit does the same. Don't let yourself be sidelined when Jesus is the main thing. And the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. Now with that, he says, now with that sideliner's attempts and you're keeping your focus, stay straight on Christ. Now we have these four verses that are application to that. Since that's the case, and remember that was the whole idea back in the last chapter because it told us you died with Christ and you've been raised with Christ. Since that's the case, if that really is reality for you, and let me start there for a moment. Have you been? Is it really reality? Have you really been raised with Christ? Because if you haven't, this obviously isn't applicable to you. If you've accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, then you have been in the likeness of, likeness of his death and as a result of that, then of course it's the case. Now look back just to chapter 2, verse 10. It says, if you died to the basic principles of this world, then why are you trying to live in them anymore? So you obviously died. But wait a minute. If that's the case, look at verse 12 of chapter 2. It says, you were buried with him in baptism, but you were also raised with him. Now listen, that's just a fact. Paul's not just playing some kind of high, higher theological base on this. The bottom line is, this is the fundament of Christianity. This isn't just about the fact that Jesus took away your guilt, so you might as well party it up and live like an Epicurean, because who really cares? Jesus paid for all your sins anyways. That's trampling on the cross where Christ died. He says, you died with Christ, and now you live in a new, you're a new person now. You are a new person, and if you are a new person, it's time to live like it. It tells us for what it's worth in 2 Corinthians, and mark this down so you know I didn't make this up. And actually, you can go there because it really isn't that far. Hold your finger where you're at, and you're going to go to the left. So you're in Colossians. If you're going to go backwards, it'll be Philippians, Ephesians, and then Galatians, and then the Corinthian letters. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And it won't be that far. It'll be a handful of pages. And I'm going to have you turn to a couple places today because that's what we do, and I love it. Okay. 2 Corinthians. Go ahead. Go, you can find it. That's cool. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is or she is a new creation. Don't stop there, though. It tells us this. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. That's fundamental. Because what that's telling us is that if you're in Christ, you're either in your sin. There are only, there's only two options. You're either in your sin or you're in Christ. You're in one or the other. You only I mean, there's only two pools to be in. You're in the pool of grace or in the pool of sin. And if you're in Christ, it doesn't say, and hear me out, listen, it doesn't say you became a new creation, and we often live that way. Have you ever done this? You gave your life to Christ way back whenever, and you felt like Jesus kind of washed away all that stuff, and then you feel like, oh, but now look at all the sin I've gotten since then. At least it isn't all that stuff. I should have given my life to Christ a little later so all that sin could be washed away too. By the way, that the Catholic Church teaches that. It's like Jesus died for all your sin, but from this point on, the Catholic Church has to help you work out the rest of it. But that's not what it says. It doesn't say whoever is in Christ became a new creation. Listen, whoever is currently right now in Christ is currently right now a new creation. Wait a minute. Guess what? You're a new creation right now. Guess what? You're a new creation right now. 
Are you in Christ right now? Are you? This is the response time. You are alive. Are you guys in Christ right now? Yes. So that means you're a new creation right now. Are you in Christ right now? Yes. So you're in a creation right now, too. Do you get the point? You are perpetually, if you're going to be perpetually in Christ, you're going to be perpetually a new creation. Why is that the case? Because we need that, don't we? He's continually making us new because otherwise we're going to put a whole new set of baggage and luggage on top of us that we don't need. And in that, then he says, all things passed away. Things have become new. Now, flip further to your left. You're in 2 Corinthians. It'll be 1 Corinthians and then Romans. Go to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, verse 4. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so, we also, notice, should walk in the newness of life. For if we've been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Now, understand, we don't get this whole spiritual realm thing, and God knows that. We're not going to surprise God by saying, God, I'm carnal, I don't get that spiritual thing. He picked 12 guys, and even the 12 guys that are going to turn the world right side up for him didn't get the most basic of parables that we could lie and say we would have gotten had we been there. Bottom line was, I mean, he's like the seed of the, the, the kingdom of God's like a guy who sows seed in a bunch of different soils. And we're like, got it, understand. And it's so wonderful to watch these guys. And they're like, uh, uh, I, don't, I don't get it. I, I don't get the whole seed sower thing. I mean, you could see him going, what part didn't you get? The seeds. And they're, they're like, um, all of it, all of it. And you watch some people that proclaim that these guys were like super amazing, gifted, brilliant, blah, blah, blah. They were normal nincompoops like us. Glory to God. And so he says, well, how do I explain this in a way you guys can get it? Baptism. Let's invent baptism. Because baptism is going to be a really cool thing because you can't really baptize a person without bringing them back up again. That's called murder if you actually just bring them down. And so, I mean, think about it. Jesus could have said, let's just sort of stick you under a bunch of covers. We'll pull the covers off and whoop, there you go. Look at you. But he had to do something that was necessary for us to pull you up legally to make it happen. I mean, he picked the one thing that death was on the other side of it. And he goes, let me explain this in a way you can understand. I'm going to take you. I'm going to stick you down so you're completely covered. You're completely covered because that's the way Jesus was. He literally died. And as he literally died, he was literally covered. And as he was literally covered, the whole idea of it was, is that death literally covered him completely. Just the same way your sin literally covered you because you were in sin before you were in Christ. And so Jesus took all of that down. Jesus went and took and went into the pool of our sin, and he died there. But that's not the end of the story. And that's the way many Christians live. If we baptize people like many of Christians think of their life, 
you just take them down and you leave them there until the bubbles stop. I mean, think about it because it's like I just think I just thought I was a terrible person. I used to kick nuns and hurt puppies and and you know and I looked at children and I scowled at them and I took the suckers for fun and you know and all this stuff. Ha <laughs> I got your lolly. You know, and and all of that somewhere in all of it, it's like you know. And but now I don't do any of that anymore. And you're like, well, what do you do? Because it's like I don't do any more any of that anymore. <laughs> I don't do any of that anymore. Well, what about what you do do now? Well, I don't know what I do now. You know? I mean, hey, there's a new life on the other side of this the world doesn't know about. There isn't it, you know? They're like, so what do you do now? And that's what they ask, right? Well, you don't drink or you don't sleep around, you don't whatever. What do you do now? And all they see is the... They don't see what happens on the other side. You bring yourself up. And I tell you what, that's why we've always baptized in the ocean. Because when you take someone down in that cold water and they come up, they come up a new person. They come in. They shoot up like toast that's like been, you know, set on something. They're like, whoo! Man, I tell you, they're just, whoa, I'm just glad to be out of that water. <laughs> and, you know, and then they, they forget about the fact the pastor's going to be in there for three and a half hours taking the next few people. But the fun part about it is you watch the people, they come up, and they're just, yeah, you know? And it's like, like they came out of the grave. And Jesus goes, get that. Because the rest of your life's on the other side of that. And if your life isn't on the other side of that, then what kind of life are you living? And you see, when they see the cross, all they see is sacrifice. I don't get to do any of this stuff anymore. And do you know what? When you really fall in love with the Lord and the Lord gets a hold of you and infects you like he intends to, you look back at all that other stuff and go, boy, that stuff's just rotten and nasty. Who wants to go back in that grave? And you realize, you go, God, I wish I had learned this earlier. And this is where it starts. He doesn't say because you just died in Christ. Since you died in Christ, do this stuff. Because it's like, since you died in Christ, stop doing that stuff. That's the idea of that. But since you were raised with Christ, there's a brand new person now. Well, what does that new person do? Because that new person doesn't know what to do, does it? I mean, you know, when I got saved, I was 19. I was a baby. I was an infant Christian, but I was a 19-year-old sinner. That's enough time to get a degree. And I realized that, you know, I was, I was teaching sin. I was teaching sin. I, was, I, I felt like I had a PhD in sin. I could teach you how to sin. Sin 101, 202, 303, and 404, you know? <laughs> I was like, Dr. Asin, PhD, you know, and I was like, and in and, and of that, it's like, you know, P, it's like a PhD, pretty hell bound is what I was. And, and all of a sudden, I'm like, wow. And my body says, well, wait a minute, we could still sin. Jesus saved us. And that's where the church goes. I'm like, well, and, you know, and what we preach to the world is Jesus is for saving, but the world's for fun. And it's like, no wonder why it's like people are like, well, you know what? I'll give my life to Jesus on my deathbed. I hope I get, you know, that's how I die. Hope I don't get hit by a bus unless I have enough time to pray that prayer before I do. Because, I mean, after all, I want to have as much fun as I possibly can. And then, boom, I get hit. Okay, why? Jesus, we're okay, right? And you can see Jesus going, excuse me, you robbed yourself. Robbed yourself of what I had for you in this world. But I remember when Shantae was a bit younger, we, um, we were told about a man who was 84 years old who gave his life to Christ. And Shanti's response in hearing that in front of the people who were telling us was, what a waste. And they, went, they looked at her kind of strange. It's a strange thing for a child to say. And she said, all those wasted years. And I, I, I've never forgotten that because it was profound to me. I was like, well, I'll give my life to Christ later. It's like, why in the world would you want to do that? If marriage is an awesome thing, why would you want to get married when you're 60 and you could get married younger? And enjoy your life, you know, because in the end of it all, 
you realize when something's good, you're like, wow, I wish I had learned about this earlier. There are certain restaurants around town where I like, boy, I wish I had learned about that place earlier. I would have visited a whole lot more. And the Lord's like, you know, if you were raised with me, and you can see why we're going to pray to see if we can get these four words. Back in our text in the book of Colossians. If you were raised, notice it says, with Christ. Sunigero is the word. Sunigero and the idea of it is that you were revived or brought to life with someone else. Together. In the same way that Jesus was raised to life, so are you. With the same power that raised Jesus is the same power that raised you. And you're like, well, I didn't literally die. God says, by every by his grace, you're here. And I did that with the same power. It's like raising someone from the dead physically, that's easier than raising somebody spiritually. Spiritually, you were at enmity with me. You were an enemy to me. You hated me. You didn't know it, but I with Christ, the first thing he says is, there was this movie, there was a couple actually, they, for whatever reason, thought it was so good, they made a couple of them, back, I think it was in the 80s or 90s, called Weekend of Bernie. Uh, I'm not in any way endorsing the movies, uh, to be honest, I never saw them, but basically, I think the basic idea of the movie was, these guys come over to this house and find that the guy that's supposed to be the life of the party happens to be the dead guy of the party, he's literally dead, and then they basically carry this dead guy around with them all over the place to try to kind of keep the thing going. It's kind of a sick and morbid thought. But I, I realize in all of that, the concept is, is that the dead guy really couldn't do anything without anyone else's help. And if you let him down, basically he would do nothing. He couldn't seek anything. He couldn't move. He couldn't plan anything. He couldn't desire anything. He was dead. And if you set him down, his face was on the ground and all he could see. And I realized that the world living in that death, in that death does the same thing. They really can't function they can't see Christ. They can't chase after Christ or any of that stuff. And their face is always down. They're just, they're just dead. And in that same way, it's strange is, is that we could try to take the person we used to be, which is a dead body now, according to the book of Romans, and try to drag him around as if somehow he could still be the life of the party. How stupid that is. What a waste. And yet in all of that, he says, now look, at if you were raised with Christ, seek. Now, the word for seek is zetecho. And zetecho means, listen, to pursue, hear this, pursue with affection. It doesn't just mean, and here's the opposite, to apathetically wait to observe something, to stoically see something that crosses your path, to seek something, to be seeker-sensitive. As a church, we should be seek we should be seeking or sensitive to you, Christians, because it's Christians that are called to be seekers. Unbelievers aren't seeking Christ. Romans makes that clear when it says no one seeks after Christ. Now, there's no way to interpret that except this. No one seeks after Christ. And I believe that that means no one seeks after Christ. So to say I'm going to be a seeker, we're going to be a seeker-sensitive church, the only seekers there should be are you because they're told right here, seek. What the world is seeking isn't Christ. They're seeking the things of Christ without him. But what we should be seeking, and that's what we see here, is that you should be seeking. Don't apathetically just wait to observe something. Get in hot pursuit. Put your affection in this and set your eyes upon it. Well, what is it you're supposed to set your eyes upon? It says the things which are above. Now, there's two worlds to focus on. One world is this temporary world that we live in that in essence will be 
at best a dream. What we read is that life is but a vapor. And one thing about vapor, and you can see it as the wind gets more cold outside and we hit those nights and you can see your breath, is you can't hold on to it. It isn't like there you are breathing, and as you're breathing, you see your vapor, and you're like, I loved that breath. And you're trying to hold on to it, and you know, you put it in a hanky, and then you open it up. There's no breath left. But it's like, I want to breathe that in and breathe that breath again. It was such a good breath. You guys, watch how good this breath was. And you open it up, and there's nothing for people to see except, at best, some moisture on your hanky. And people go, wow, that's really gross. <laughs> but you go, look at it. God says, that's all your life is. It's just one exhale, one exhale that dissipates. Then in the end of it all, is going to at best can leave a contagion. And that's all your life is going to be here. But then you de you're dealing with eternity on the other side of that. What a radically bizarre thought. I mean, think about if you lived 100 years. If you lived 100 years. And eternity wasn't eternity, but eternity was just a million years. Although it's not. Eternity is eternity. But if you only, if you lived a billion, a million years in heaven, and you lived a hundred years here, what's the proportion? What's a hundred to, to a, a million? What's the proportion of that? That's one in every 10,000. That would be for every breath you take, there would be 10,000 breaths to be taken in heaven every day that you live there would be that there now I mean do the math and all that what if eternity was a billion years for every day that you live here how many days would you live there what if eternity was 10 billion years then for every day that you live here well this would be the easy one if you live a hundred years and eternity was a hundred billion years that would be for every day that you live here there would be a billion years in eternity. But that's still not eternity. That's just 100 billion years. Imagine eternity for a moment. It's mind-blowing to think that there's no end to it. And we look, and that's if you live 100 years, which, by the way, you'd make your way onto like the morning shows where they show your kind of wrinkly face, and it's like, well, you know, there's Edna, and, you know, and Edna, and she lives on prunes and whiskey, you know, or something like that. She calls it get up and go or something, you know. And then say, everyone say hi to Edna. She's 101 today, you know, and she's got that look like, I really don't mind dying, you know. <laughs> you know, and you look at all that. And it's like, but you know, someday it's like you, you stand before the Lord. Okay, now do that spatially for just a second, you know. Do, sorry. Do that spatially for a second. Uh-oh. We're creating trouble over here. Do that spatially for a second. Okay, if this room were our life and we lived 100 years in this space, how much space are we looking at here? I mean, we're looking at a space of, you want to want to guess 20 feet by 10 feet maybe? We're kind of looking at something like that. I mean, you realize if you do that and you compare it to 1,000 or 10,000, all of a sudden this room becomes Hampstead Heath. And then all of a sudden you realize if you started comparing it to a million or to 100 million compared to here, that would mean if this room were your life, the entire earth would be the difference in space. And if you started comparing it to the billions, all of a sudden, though this room be the entire entirety of your life, 
then all of a sudden eternity, and again, that's a limited eternity, would be the size of the galaxy or the universe. But it doesn't even have that end to it. And what's crazy is spending all your time investing on something that isn't going to pay off in the end. I mean, imagine learning the lines for some movie so that you can go and see the movie and say every line in front of them. But when the movie's done, it really isn't, doesn't matter anymore. I mean, and you have to go, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. Let me tell you, and you have those people that are like, oh, wait a minute, you're going to love this part next. And you're like, I'm not going to love it anymore. I, now that I know what's going to happen, oh, this part's really going to surprise you. <laughs> not anymore. <laughs> you know, and you realize in all of that, that, you know, you get, it's like, it's like being really good at a Wii game. You know, and you're like, and then you li- and then it's like, you know, yeah, I mastered this Wii game. And then all of a sudden we discontinues and they have this new thing, 3D animated, blah, 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 where you can actually touch and feel. I mean, all of a sudden you're like, wow, I'm really good at Pong, you know, <laughs> that I can hook up to my antenna TV that doesn't exist anymore so that I could go bloop. I'm really good at that. And people are like, what? What's Pong? Because it doesn't matter anymore. And you realize you've mastered something that's got a season and that's it. And you invest in your life and you master in a season, then that's it. And then your vapor evaporates. And you're left with the expanse of the universe in front of you and you've done nothing to invest in it. And yet Jesus said, store your treasures in heaven. Lay them up there. And they're going to pay off for eternity. What a radical difference. And he says, look, if you were raised with Christ, I want you seeking. I don't want you apathetically waiting that maybe something cool will be observed. Get now in hot pursuit. Because without being in pursuit of anything, you're going to be lukewarm. And Jesus has a pretty radical response to lukewarm. The words vomit. Jesus is like, look it, I'd rather you be totally cold than totally lukewarm. Because if you're at least that, we all know where we stand with each other. You know where you stand with me. The worst place you could be is so lukewarm, you think you're hot when you're not. And that's a really awful place to be. Because in the end of it all, you'll make me vomit. You'll make me sick to my stomach. Because I don't want that. Jesus never burned tepid for us. Jesus was always full on, full on to stand against our own folks, to stand against our sin, to stand against the enemy, and to never once cower. All Jesus had to do was sin once, and his sacrifice would be incomplete, wouldn't be enough for us. He had to be full on all the time. And he's like, look, you need to seek. You need to get on this now. Not because it saves you, but because you can start acting like the person I created you to be now. Seek the things which are above. Well, I'll give you a couple places in your own time. Revelation 4 and 5. It's a fantastic place to be. Because if there's one place that's above, that's it. And for the sake of time, forget it. I don't care about time. Let's go to Revelation 4. You need to see some of this. I need to see some of this. If there's one place we can be sure is above, that's heaven. Revelation should be fairly easy to find. It's the last book of the Bible. So go to the and this is the and this is the end of the story. 
by the way, for those of you who don't know whether or not you want to read a whole book, so you read the last chapter first to make sure it's worth it, you'll find we win, it's worth it. Uh, in chapter 4, verse 1, and this is what it says. After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice was like, that I heard was like the voice of a trumpet speaking to me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you the things which must take place after this. Immediately I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. One of the things that's above, the things that are above, is a God who sits on the throne. Not a God who's worried or freaked out, but a God who sits on the throne. That's always important. God has this habit, by the way, of always showing himself on the throne right before he shows you chaos. Because the idea of it is, even though your world may appear to be chaotic, I am not. Though your world may appear to be in disorder while I do some construction work on you, I'm not in disorder. I know exactly what I'm doing, and I'm never off the throne trying to figure out what in the world, checking the you know human reconstruction for dummies book or something. I know exactly what I'm doing, and I'm on the throne. I know exactly how this works. And he talks about this individual who was like a beautiful stone in appearance. There were elders and creatures around him that you go, well, these are pretty freaky looking creatures. Well, if sure they are, that's just because you don't live there. They probably look at you and think the same. Uh, and, and all of that, it tells us in that verse 8, that the four living creatures, each having six wings and were full of eyes all around. And if you're like, that sounds really weird. Well, then you've never met a mom. Moms seem to have eyes all around. You just don't see them. Um, and they do not rest day or night, but this is what we read. And this happens in places above. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. One thing that's really evident is that, remember, holy means weird, unique, distinct. But like, there's no one like him. We sing it today. One thing that's really evident is God is not like other gods that aren't gods at all. And when someone says, oh, you're like our God. You're the God. Oh, other gods are the same. And you're like, no, no, actually, no, not at all. Your God's needy and cranky and really has takes delight in punishing people. My God takes delight in mercy. My God sent his son to die on the cross to redeem mankind. Yours, even if you lived a really, really good life, could send you to hell and actually take glee in it because he could just be in that kind of mood. Your God's not my God. Well, you know, he's one of the gods. No, there are no other gods. This is the one God, and that's it. You are unique. You're holy, holy, holy. Three times, that's it. It doesn't say here that he's cool, cool, cool. That he's exciting, exciting, exciting. No, he's all of those things. The one thing you need to know is my God's not anyone else's God unless it's the God of the Bible. It even says, well, I'm a Christian and I believe in that. We read, by the way, that even Satan says he believes in Jesus, but at least he has brains enough to shove it. If you say you believe in God and it doesn't do anything to you, then you're worse off than Satan. Satan at least, had, Satan at least is affected by the idea of Jesus. Now, verse 9, whenever the living creatures give glory and honor to him who sits on the throne who lives forever and ever. The 24 elders fell down before him who sit on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever, in case you forgot that ever and ever thing, that eternity. And they cast their crowns before the throne, saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory, honor, power, because you created all things, and in you all things exist. So you go from holy, 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 to worthy, worthy, worthy. In heaven, one thing's really evident, is that not only is God unique, he's also worthy of all good things. Any good thing, he, he deserves it. I don't deserve it, but he does. I live in a world where everything's about you being entitled. You deserve a break. You deserve a holiday. And on the other side of it, it's like, look it, in heaven, God's the one who deserves everything, not you. God's entitled. Now, with that in mind, notice it says, you've created. In heaven, there's no debate over evolution. God created it. And matter of fact, not only did God create it, he holds it together. He also created you, and he holds you together. We read that in Colossians 1, didn't we? Then chapter 5, 
we see that there's this whole idea of redeeming the world, by the way. And then it tells us this, that in verse 8, Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. By the way, that lamb is the way they see. And in heaven, they see a lamb that's been slaughtered, but John sees a lion. And I love that because sometimes we don't see as heaven does. We see a lion that is invincible and heaven sees the perfect sacrifice. And it says, as that's the case, it says that he came and took the scroll. These guys, they said they all have a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. And that song is, you're worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood. Notice you've redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Another thing was really evident is that's the gospel. You're aware of that, right? You've redeemed us by your blood. If I have my mind on heavenly things, I would have my mind on the gospel of Jesus Christ, what I'm redeeming. I would see a lamb that is slaughtered and a lion that's invincible. And I would see both of them as Jesus, the lion and the lamb. And in that, I would say, you know what? You redeemed me. The world's not going to redeem me. The world's not even going to justify or rectify me. You redeemed me. You redeemed me by your blood. That's my mind on, on heavenly things. And it says, and you made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. Now, wait a minute. Kings means we have authority. Priests means we bear the burden of other people's sins. We carry them to the living God. We actually hurt, we hurt for people. And he says, wait a minute. If I were to have a heavenly mind, I would recognize Christ has given me authority. Now, hear me out. God never gives authority without responsibility. He doesn't arbitrarily say, well, you're in charge of something, but then not give you responsibility over it. I give you responsibility. All the authority I give you is for you to complete what I've set before you. And this is what I set before you. I want you to carry other people's sins to me and pray for them. Pray for them. But then I also want you to carry my love to those people. Because I'm worthy, God did say. You've redeemed me. And if you redeemed me, you made me a king and a priest. And I'm going to do both. And with that then, it says in verse 12, in verse 11, look at, imagine being here for this. And again, obviously I'm not developing this like I'd love to. And I looked and I heard a voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the number of them were 10,000s times 10,000s and thousands of thousands. The idea is this is a crowd no one can count. And then saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom, strength, honor, glory, and blessing. So that's three different times now. Notice that they've said worthy. So they went holy, 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 and now we have worthy, worthy, worthy. And it says, in every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, such as in the sea, and all that is in them, I heard saying, blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb forever and ever. Then the four living creatures said, amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshiped him who lives forever and ever. In case you were missing that worship or that lives forever and ever, notice they went, holy, 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 worthy, 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 blessed. Now blessed, remember, just means stoked. We serve a blessed God. Not a God who's like, make my day, I'm cranky. This is a God who's blessed. It says, blessed the Lord. We have a blessable God who can be stoked. A God who smiles, a God who rejoices, a God who sings, a God who dances. This is my God. A joyful God. A blessed God. And you know why he's blessed? Because he's not like your God. Because he's blessed. He's not like you are. He's not like I am. Praise God. He's blessed. He's holy, holy, holy. He's worthy, 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 and he's blessed. And worship happens as a result of that. And if my mind were on that, then I look at anything in this world and it's pitiful in comparison. They're like, ooh, look at this. I just walked by, I saw my first Maserati. As I was walking and praying, 
I looked, and it's not like I looked and went, ooh, I need a Maserati. I just went, oh, like, that's it, that's it. There's a car, and it's a Maserati. Whew, there you go. Parked in a place that's just, like, near the Keats house. And I'm walking, and I'm praying, and I'm like, Lord, put me in a heavenly mind. You know, and then I look over, and I see the Maserati, and I'm like, wow, that's, there's just, it's a car. You know, that you can actually burn lots of petrol waiting to move another six inches in traffic, you know, while you pay a congestion charge. I mean, how neat's that? And people look and go, ooh, you've got a Maserati. Yeah, who cares? You're in traffic like everybody else. And it's, and I didn't, I'm looking at it, I didn't give it a good look because I figured someone that owns a Maserati might have a shotgun. But um, I realized I looked at it and I went, it doesn't look any more special. It doesn't look like when you sit in the chair, you get a massage or something to pay all that money. It's like you're in traffic with everyone else sitting in a car like somebody else is sitting in a car that has a stereo like someone else does. Who cares if it's better? It doesn't matter. You can't turn it up real loud anyways in a seat that looks like other people's seats. Congratulations. You know, if you have a Maserati, I'm not there to complain against you. Bottom line is, listen, it's just, it's, just, it's just a thing like everything else. Go back to Colossians. Let's wrap around this a little bit. Listen, seek the things that are above. If your mind, no, wait a minute. Have you ever heard anyone say, you can be so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good? Well, the Bible actually says, if you're not heavenly minded, you are no earthly good. Because if you're earthly minded, then you're just like everyone else. Then you're basically acting like Bernie on Weekends with Bernie. You're just acting like a dead person. But seek the things which you are above. Now listen, where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Now, listen to this. Hebrews 1.3. Jesus is the brightness of his glory and the expressed image of his person. Upholding the word by his power. When he had purged our sin, he sat down. Listen, when he had purged our sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Hebrews 10, verses 12. But this man, when he had offered sin, sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. Do you realize that something happened before he sat down? Hebrews 12, 2. Looking unto Jesus, my favorite verse in this uh, regard to this. Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and then sat, has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now listen. Sitting down after the job is done. On the throne of a king, there is a left seat and a right seat. The left seat's the guy who's your counselor. And God will say, who's been my counselor? Whose counsel do I need? And there are times where, to be honest, we try to fill that seat. God, let me counsel you on how you're to direct my life, who you should be making me. And God's like, um, I don't have that seat here. I don't have a queen mother, contrary to what some might preach, but I don't have a queen mother. I don't need counsel. I'm God. But I do have a right seat. And the right seat, by the way, we even use the term today, my right-hand man. The right hand is where you, the guy who gets your job done. He's the one who executes your will. So the king says, this is what I want done. He turns to the guy to his right, and that's the guy responsible. He's the foreman for that project. And he does not rest until that job's done. That's, or he gets his head lopped off. Those are his two options. It's a tough job, but someone's got to do it. God himself looks, and who's at his right hand? Jesus is at his right hand. That's who's there. And what we read in all of those verses, when he had purged your sin, when he had cleansed you of your sin, when he had paid the price, which tells me the heart of the Father. What the Father wanted done is, save Landon, would you please? Save Luke, would you please? Would you pay for Sam's sin? Would you pay for Julian's sin? Would you go and be tortured to death because someone needs to pay for, for James's guilt? And Jesus says, as you wish, Father. And he went, and listen, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Now, what joy is there in that? 
joy in being tortured, a joy in being nailed, a joy of being spat upon, a joy of hanging naked, a joy of having your skin of your back ripped off, a joy of having people look up at you and say, he saved others, save yourself, come off of the cross. And you know he could have. And then he could have whooped them all right at that moment, but he didn't. Because it was a joy that was set before him that caused him to endure that sin. Beloved, what's that joy? That's you. That's the joy. The only thing that kept him on the cross wasn't nails. This is God we're talking about. It wasn't ropes. This is God. He made those nails. He made that rope. He made the wood that he knew would be turned into that cross. Brought him on the cross was the joy that would be his. And you could almost see the Father giving him one moment just to encourage him. Only one moment on the cross to encourage him. And you know what that one moment was? The guy next to him that would say, when you enter your kingdom, can you remember me? And you could see Jesus going, oh, that's why I'm doing this. It was for you. I'll bleed and I'll be tortured and I'll hang and I'll drip spit and I'll let them pluck my beard and I'll hang naked in front of all people for them to cheer and for them to jeer and for them to offer you know, vinegar on my ripped up face and back. Experience all of that just because of one thing because there is a joy on the other side that's so good. This is worth it, and the joy in you. And we look and think the cross isn't worth it for us, and the joy that Jesus has is you and me. But it doesn't say where Jesus now is standing at the right hand, but he's sitting. Why is he sitting? Because he finished. And if you seek the things above, you know what you're going to see? Jesus finished the job. He paid for you. He cleansed you. He paid the price. That's the joy. Now, one more thing, and I know we're going late, but thank you for your patience. Why stop here? We've got three more verses. Set your mind. If you've been raised... Then put your mind in a raised position. If you've been resurrected, put your, put your eyes on a resurrected position. And then set your mind on things above. The word set your mind is the word frenecho. Fren or frain is the word we use, for instance, in, in psychological and psychiatric uh, evaluations. For instance, the word for torn is schizo. A person with a torn thinking is a schizophren. That's the word here, frenecho. And the idea is simple. You're torn. Your thinking is torn. But the idea of this in its simplest sense is, hear me out, is to exercise your mind. King James says, have affection for it. The idea is exercise. If my eyes are set upon something, my mind is going to follow. That's why sin happens the way it does. My eyes are set upon something because I'm seeking it, and then my mind gets set upon it. And he says, that's what I want you to do with the things above. Seek those things which are above, and then set your mind on those things. Let it be your path. Set your mind on things above, not things on earth. And notice, there it is. Be heavenly minded, not earthly. I'll tell you why. Because you died. And your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Now hear me out. The word hidden is the word krypto. It's where we get the word crypt. Isn't it interesting? He says you died and your life was crypted with Christ. It's interesting because the word in its simplest sense means to hide by covering. And it makes a lot of sense. I mean, Ruthie does this all the time. When she plays hide-and-seek, she just finds something and throws it on top of her, and that's her hiding place. But look at what have you hidden in? What covers you? What covers you so you're hidden? 
Look at what it says. You tell me, verse 3. What is your covering so that the enemy can't find you? What is it? Christ. It says, listen, you died and your life is hidden in Christ. Your life is covered in Christ. You're covered in Christ. You're not in your sin anymore. You're in Christ. When the Father looks, he sees you covered in Christ. When the enemy looks, he sees you covered in Christ. And your entire life is covered in Christ. That's the glory of all this. It tells us, by the way, the idea of it is, it says, you're, listen, your life is covered in Christ, right, or with Christ, in God. Isn't that what it says? You're the valuable. Christ is the safe. The Father is the only one who has the combination. You are the guilty party. Jesus is the city of refuge. In the book, in the book of Numbers, for what it's worth, chapter 35, it says if a person kills somebody inadvertently, accidentally kills someone, obviously that family is going to want vengeance on them. But that man can flee to what's called a city of refuge. And when he does, he is safe as long as he goes there and stays there, as long as he's willing to live there. Now listen, he didn't know what he was doing. In other words, he didn't intentionally kill him. He could flee to that city of refuge and be safe from the avenger. Are you with me so far? You ever wonder why Jesus says, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do? By making that statement, we're allowed to flee to the city of refuge. You know what the city of refuge is? Jesus. Jesus is my city of refuge. And as long as I'm in Christ, I'm safe. <coughs> Who can get me? Him in Christ. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross so that I can be his. Now, lastly, in Christ who is our life appears, it appears in this is more than just seek things eternal because eternal is going to catch up with you. Eternity is going to show up and it's going to show up in Jesus. Jesus is my eternity. I mean, if he was the thing that I rooted, was grown in, was established in and abounded in for Thanksgiving, if he was the one who resurrected me, he was the one who blotted out my sin, excuse me, blotted out my sin. If he was the one then who triumphed over hell, he is my eternity. And when he appears and he is coming, like a thief in the night. And when he comes, I will appear with him. And when I appear with him, I will appear, notice what it says, in glory. It says this, Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live in the flesh, not by the flesh, but I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Titus, it says this, the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying all godly, godlessness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 5.4 says, When our chief shepherd appears, you will receive a crown of glory that does not fade away. If you set your mind your heart will follow. If you set your eyes, your mind will follow. If you set your eyes on things above, not on earthly things. If you set your mind on things, your eyes on things above, your heart will, your mind will follow, and your heart will follow after. And when Jesus appears, you will appear with him in glory, because that is the benefit of a resurrected Jesus. And that's what he wants for every one of us, beloved. As we go to prayer, I want to thank the Lord desperately for His. The joy that he had in setting me before him to endure the cross. 
And because he knew that though that pain was temporary, it gets eternity with him. And if the pain of the cross was temporary, how much more the pain that we suffer that's so much less for the rest of this world, knowing that eternity awaits us. Set your minds where they belong. Set your eyes where they belong. Because the Lord has a work to do here. And the moment you set your eyes where they belong, God does a work in the depths of death. Will you pray with me? God, thank you so much for your glorious word, for what you've done in this time. Lord, thank you for this beautiful text. And Lord, that we died. And we're happy to say that old person's dead. I don't want to fall in love with that person. I don't want to get esteem for that person. I want that person dead so that the new person you've created would come to life. The person you ordained, Lord, when you raised me from the grave, just like a person baptized coming out of the water. And in that same way, Lord, I pray right now for every one of us, Lord, that we would get excited about what you have for us in this beautiful building project you call our recreation. And in that, Lord, I just pray right now that you would do a cool and amazing thing. Lord, please, in all of us, transform us. Put our eyes where they belong. And I know, Lord, what we really value is what we'll see. So may we, with affection and passion, seek you and the things above. May we then, with vehemence, set our mind on things above, not on the things of this earth that are just part of that vapor. You tell us, Lord, that the world and its lusts are fading away. How evident is that with every catastrophe, with every moment of a hint of entropy, the world is fading away. But you, Lord God, you're eternal. Your word is eternal. And we who do your will abide forever. We openly confess again, Jesus, that you are our sacrifice for our guilt. Your death on the cross paid for all of our sins. And we want to live eternally in you where we are perpetually a new creation. So Lord, today, for every one of us, please, as we openly profess, Jesus, if you are then our Savior, our ransom, then you have absolute right. You are holy, 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 the only one who's redeemed us, the only one who's purchased us, the only one who was our ransom payment. But you are also worthy, worthy, worthy. You are worthy to be our Lord, and we confess you as our Lord. You are worthy to be our master, worthy to be the architect of our reinvention. And in being worthy, we commit ourselves to you. And in committing ourselves to you, we know that you are blessed, rejoicing over our walk with you. And so, Lord, we do pray you come quickly. And as you come quickly, we hunger, not for the day when the world will finally see us, Lord, crown in glory with you, Right now, maybe we're at the end of the line, Lord, and that's where you call us to want to be. But Lord, we know that there will be a day when you will honor us because we're yours. So we commit ourselves to you, Lord. Have your way now, we pray. In Jesus' name.